Hello, this is Daniel Neff, and welcome to Global Business Alliance's October Trade Policy Podcast. This month, we are joined by Michael Lightman and Doug Bell from EY. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. This month's podcast will be focused mostly on China. As you may know, we have had a lot of recent developments the past few weeks, and Michael and Doug are going to be giving us some uh, good detail into what it means and what we can expect in this space. So to quickly recap, earlier this month, USTR Catherine Tai provided a window into the long-awaited Biden administration's approach to trade with China. Since then, the U.S. has held talks with China and announced that President Biden and President Xi will meet before the year's end. To start, could you guys both dive a little deeper into your takeaways from the announced strategy? Sure, Daniel. I'll, I'll start us off. Um, I think the maybe the first point is, is it wasn't necessarily um, the hope for expected laying out of the grand strategy uh, that I think maybe had sort of was anticipated. It was a much more modest speech. Um, but that said, I mean, I think there were a couple key points that, that came out of it uh, that are worth noting. And I also think it was important in terms of the tone and sort of the atmospherics that um, they were trying to set. So in terms of substance, um, I think the, you know, the first big point I would make is that really the continued centrality of the phase one agreement. This was, of course, the agreement that was uh, came uh, was made uh, under the last president, uh, and it focused on purchase agreements and a number of um, regulatory changes and some market access in the financial sector, services sector specifically. So um, uh, she, in her speech, made it very clear that particularly the service, the excuse me, the purchase agreements were going to be a major focus of the conversation. Uh, and it sounds like, in terms of the readout, that that was indeed the case. Um, that's a, in a particular issue because if you look at the numbers and a number of you know folks are out there you know trying to to to, to quantify it, uh, it's pretty clear that China has not uh, met its or is unlikely to meet uh, its uh, commitment by the end of the year. So clearly it's an outstanding issue of concern. Um, and the significance there is that the administration is saying that they, like the last one, um, is looking at managed trade. Uh, and, you know, the, the issue of the deficit is, is, is still important. Um, they also, she also mentioned sort of the larger structural issues, what in the past have been referred to as phase two issues, um, that those would also be raised, although importantly, she didn't really note any sort of mechanism that was going to be used to sort of address that going forward, but that certainly the U.S. hadn't forgotten about them and that they're still important issues. So these are issues like subsidies and um, sort of elements of, you know, kind of structural aspects of the trading relationship that are of concern. Uh, and then... Um, there also wasn't a, especially with respect to the, the purchases and the fact that China's not expected to make it, didn't really go into any detail about what sort of dispute settlement might look like uh, if the U.S. decides to, you know, get more formal in its concerns uh, with China's performance. Great. Thanks, Doug. And so additionally, the decision to keep tariffs in place has many stakeholders upset and more research and data is being released arguing that the harm of the Section 301 tariffs that have caused American jobs and tax dollars. So do you guys have any further insight into this announcement and maybe the exclusion process as a whole? Well, um, I, I think your characterization of the business community's views is pretty <laughs> pretty accurate, uh, and I think there was some disappointment. Um, although uh, she did uh, announce that the uh, exclusion process 
uh, would be revisited for those products that had already um, received an exclusion um, that had expired. So uh, opened up the opportunity to perhaps renew renew those exclusion. Uh, and then she also made a, uh, I said, I would characterize as a sort of sort of cryptic and indirect reference that, you know, other measures if needed might be might be examined. So I, I think what she was saying there is that, uh, you know, it's it's very possible that they'll look past this, you know, that that set of existing exclusions and, you know, maybe there'll be an opportunity to um, consider new exclusions uh, going forward. So um, something I think we're all going to want to kind of keep our ear to the ground and see if, if, if that materializes and if we get any more important signals on that very important point. Uh, Michael, I know you had some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I do. And I agree with everything that you've stated. I do want to reiterate a key point that you've made already you know, from a policy perspective, and, and that is that it's important to note that the U.S. Trade Representative statement on the approach was very definitive. And it actually stated that in regards to the U.S.-China relationship overall. Uh, that the objective here is to have a deliberative long-term thinking to the approach of realigning trade policies with China. And to me, that is going to become the cornerstone of what will be dictated over the next set of actions that we'll be seeing. They, they've made it clear, as Daniel mentioned, uh, that they're, they're looking at the exclusion process. That was one of three initial steps that was articulated in the USTR's announcement and the messaging. And one in particular was in terms of the exclusions said restarting of the targeted tariff exclusions process to mitigate the effects of certain Section 301 tariffs that raised costs on Americans. So what will that look like? And we don't quite think it's going to look the same as before. And the USTR is, is proposing to consider actually only 549 of the total 2200 or so exclusions that were previously granted. Those 549 were the, the more recent ones that required an extension until the end of 2020. And so the administration has done a whole of government approach in the review and looked at those products and is being very meticulous and very cautious with wanting to strike the right balance. But they also made clear that they will be evaluating each one of those, each and every one of the 549 items on a case by case basis. And they set some criteria and that criteria, if you look at it, is, is very interesting. It states that one, when they look at a product for exclusion consideration, they want to determine if that product remains only available from China still so that they can determine if it is warranted or not. Second, and I think this is where it becomes a little bit harder to understand exactly what they'll look at. It's pretty clear, but it's not clear in how they've stated it, is that the economic impacts on U.S. interests, if a product was to be reinstated for exclusion, uh, what would the impacts be on domestic competitors or on the manufacturers or on critical U.S. supply chains? And that's looking at what the impacts really will be. And then finally, the one that's the, the most interesting to me is they stated that a consideration for granting the exclusion will include looking at the overall impact of that product against the larger goal of obtaining elimination of China's acts, policies and practices that were identified in the Section 301 investigation report. And I think that ties back to the policy approach that, that Doug has outlined and that we're seeing. 
is that their their focus is going to be on truly looking to to remedy the issues that the requirements under Section 301 have identified and looking at a different approach to a bilateral relationship versus unilateral relationship, as we saw with the previous administration, but while trying to hold China to all of these changes and really, quite honestly, necessary adjustments that are important for trade. So I think they're trying to find that balance. And so with some of that as background, just a couple of examples that we have seen with companies in the past, either that went through the exclusion process at the time, uh, or now we are starting to use some data analytic tools for determining would those pro the products in question of the 549 be something that they should consider looking at in the comment period that's open presently and to monitor for the potential as well of any future exclusions. And so that's that's just where we stand at this point. So Daniel, back to you. Great, appreciate it, Michael. And so in previous podcasts, we have discussed the uncertainty regarding supply chains and decoupling with China. Um, how do you see future engagement regarding the decoupling and maybe even recoupling uh, discussions? Well, you know, Daniel, it's sort of interesting because uh, she, that I think came up in the Q&A when she was discussing it. And she made a, a very specific point of noting that um, decoupling, quote unquote, is not the goal. Uh, but she, uh, the terminology she used was that some sort of recoupling, you know, quote, or durable coexistence. Um, and I think what she was saying, when you sort of combine that with sort of the overall sort of backstory that she conveyed, which was a little bit fatalistic, um, if I is the term I would use. And by that, I mean, she sort of talked about the U.S.-China trading relationship and, you know, efforts in the past to sort of modify Chinese behavior, uh, the relative level unsuccessfully uh, able to do that. Um, and that, you know, in her view, how committed China is to its development model. So its use of subsidies, the role of state intervention and sort of the direction that the, you know, the Chinese economy has been taking over the last few years. And so, you know, in, in summation, what she was really saying is, is we don't think China is really going to change. So, you know, while we shouldn't be decoupled from them, uh, you know, a new trading relationship is going to have to recognize that, uh, you know, China is what it is uh, and that, you know, sort of unfettered trade uh, leaves the United States at a competitive disadvantage because of these um, you know, market distorting uh, practices that China is, is using. So any sort of new trade regime is going to need to sort of take that into account, you know, whether that's some sort of, um, you know, more protections. Um, I think that was one of the things that I think when we were when you, you started us off, did we get the grand strategy? We didn't. I, I think if we had gotten more of an outline of maybe what some of those that approach might look like, that would have sort of qualified as that strategy. We're still going to have to wait to see what that's actually going to look like. But I think she was putting a marker down that it's not business as usual. Yeah. Yep, and I think that makes sense, Doug. And I think what we're seeing on the global trade side in terms of you know, how does that policy or those messages of you know, how does how did that how does that get interpreted into you know the global trade community and what we are seeing on the ground? And and we continue to see uh, Asia-based companies looking at the shifting of certain component assemblies or certain production, not entire lines, even though sometimes we have seen that occur. Uh, but that that continues to happen, looking at the region, recognizing the longer term play 
that is is likely happening, especially now after the USTR's positioning and laying out the steps that we've just discussed, is likely to put a uh, a, a damper on uh, the ability to wait out the process at this point and really the need to look for alternative multi-source manufacturing or multi-supply lines. And we're seeing that in a number of examples. They they range from technology components to just some simple basic hardware sub-assemblies or components that go into various tools. And, and so it really does vary, uh, but the common theme tends to be that de-risking the total manufacturing footprint by having flexibility or multi-country production does tend to be the way that companies are evaluating this. And I actually have seen recently, even among other clients, uh, two very recent examples. One is a aftermarket auto parts supplier that relies on a tremendous amount of offshore manufacturing. They, they have seen tremendous growth and demand in their market space because they effectively serve the used car segment. And so they have benefited in a sense from the supply chain shortages on manufacturing and transportation on computer chips, for example, that need to go to vehicles that are just delayed in manufacturing or just waiting on those chips. So the used car market, as we all know, has seen an uptick uh, in that sense. However, for companies that have aftermarket part demand needs and rely on this particular company for supply, they're running into different issues. And one of those issues has been their reliance on China. So pre-pandemic, 95% of a very large SKU and product list uh, was sourced from multiple manufacturers, mostly just in China. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but that was where their business model landed. Since pandemic started, uh, just as recent as midpoint of this year, they have reduced the reliance on China sourcing to about an 80% range. And they're targeting to try to shoot for 50 to 60% in a few years time. They've seen some of their suppliers move portions, if not all of manufacturing to Turkey or India. Others have been able to utilize other platforms in different countries. And there's also if issues with steel and metal pricing as well, that depending on where you are has come into play. So it's very complex to look at the whole thing, but they have seen truly that that's been a big piece of what happened. And they view the catalyst was the U.S.-China trade war as what really finally moved the, the needle for a number of those manufacturing suppliers. And then another example is a company that's in the entertainment industry and moves sets and significant production staging and, and materials around the globe for putting on shows and utilizing uh, arenas and theaters, for example, and sports stadiums for large concerts, as an example. They do all sorts of different things. They've been hampered by two factors. The first is obvious. It's the shipping crisis. So they, they need cargo space just like everybody else. And they have been victim to the, the multiplier of the cargo container pricing and then also reliable sailings because of all the port delays. They are being told sometimes they're reserved, but they're not guaranteed a seat at the you know space on the ship, depending on if someone's paying a premium above them. So that's been very difficult to their business model. And then the other thing that's impacting this particular company is more traditional in that they supply all of their concession materials, like the merchandise that is sold at these events, whether it's little dolls uh, for the particular show that they're putting on or whatever the, the item may be. As we all know, a tremendous amount of that has traditionally come out of China, and they have been dealing with the increased compliance and pressure points as really causing their cost points to change and their ability to put the shows on with the right amount of merchandise as a big piece of the revenue. So it's interesting to see how the dynamic of 
the trade issue itself has multiple additional impacts on all these businesses and how companies are having to look at it. Thank you, Michael. Those are very interesting examples in the complex puzzle. So um, now that we've got the major pieces kind of out of the way, let's try and look into the crystal ball and see where we're headed, which is always a fun exercise. Uh, what do you guys think are the implications of this U.S.-China strategy announcement? Well, you know, I think it would um, it, it didn't necessarily, as it suggested, give a, a real clear road path or a pathway to, to kind of resolving differences with the U.S. So I think, you know, uh, you know, companies need to sort of assume that we're kind of in a stat at the minimum, we're in a status quo. I, I think the other thing that we see we're seeing is, is you know, business decisions are not um, immune from sort of the larger, um, you know, tensions in the relationship. So, uh, you know, my sense and is, is we sort of, you know, talk to our clients is that, you know, some of the larger geopolitical factors, like, for example, China, Taiwan slash U.S., uh, you know, tensions are, are, are getting are, are getting their getting companies attention um, and sort of creating a, a you know, a, a narrative that, um, you know, doing risk doing business with China is 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 more risky now than it used to be and sort of leading to sort of the types of behaviors um, you know that that Michael was outlining some of them driven by you know tariff concerns but also sort of a larger uh, you know set of concerns um, I also think that uh, you know until we really find as I suggested earlier until we find out how we get to you know deal with these really kind of structural challenges between the two countries uh, it's just going to create sort of a, a sort of a, a, a uncertainty that that firms are going to have to recognize and effectively, you know, start taking you know measures that they can, you know, might you know mitigate some of these risks or at least take them into account. Yeah, Doug, I think those are, are really good points. And and what we're seeing in practice is companies both evaluating their supply chain footprint and trying to assess what transformation steps they should take now and which steps they might want to have tentatively prepared for. But the problem, as you just state, is until there's a definitive structure uh, or framework around the structural issues to understand that, that becomes problematic. And then there's also the intertwining of so many different, especially in the technology and, and uh, some of the more complex industries that have to manage the ability to truly not decouple, you know, to use the, again, the words from earlier, but understand the impacts and can they successfully move certain pieces of their operations or business, or do they want to give up market you know, looking at it the other way around going into China. So right now, lots of, of eyes focused on a number of those factors that are going on. I think the next couple of months, seeing the steps taken with now that there's this agenda and outlook of approach that's been put out publicly, We've seen that first conversation now with the vice premier and with the USTR uh, take place. So watching, it's going to take some time, but watching what happens will probably ultimately set that stage. And then in the meantime, it's been a continuation of what we've discussed either in past podcasts or otherwise in utilizing some of the mitigation strategies that exist. I already mentioned some of the shifting of uh, manufacturing of either sub-assemblies or certain components. Or the other piece of it is utilizing an analysis for some of the rule sets that can dictate country of origin and potentially provide business certainty by shifting production 
uh, out of China, perhaps maybe final assembly will take place there, but more complex critical manufacturing and substantial transformation could be occurring in regional countries where the offset is still worthwhile considering it appears the duration for the more expensive cost of the tariffs uh, could remain. So I think, Daniel, that's pretty much what we're seeing at the moment is what we've seen for the past one to two years likely to continue for a while and then a shift when we finally see something more definitive that is ultimately set. Right. Thank you, Pat. Um, so finishing up with China, lastly, the country is currently heading into its uh, trade policy review under the World Trade Organization, something that every member has to go through. And the USTR tie recently also had expressed that China has, quote, doubled down on its state-centered economic system. Anything you guys want to note here about the review or about the statement? Well, you know, Daniel, I think I think we sort of alluded to earlier that um you know, it's it's way of saying China's not going to change and, you know, have to sort of develop it. But, you know, what was I, it is important to also note that, you know, U.S. Tai was not bombastic in her sort of discussion about China. It was, you know, very measured terms. And I, and I think, you know, the folks who were listening in, in Beijing, <laughs> and I'm sure they were, uh, you know, probably took note of that. And so, you know, it, it wasn't entirely coincidental, in my view, that, you know, in the subsequent you know, week uh, after the speech that, you know, we did get the, you know, the, the further discussions at a, at a high level, the national security level uh, advisor and his counterpart from China. The announcement that you mentioned about the Xi President Biden uh, meeting. So I, I think they are looking for ways to sort of move forward. I'm not sure we should be terribly optimistic about it, but at least there is they have started to talk to each other again. That, that's something that wasn't happening before. Uh, that's important. Um, I, I think you know both sides, the, their domestic politics make it very difficult to make concessions. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, the the optimist would say is if they can at least find a way to sort of arrest the deterioration, find a set a floor for the relationship, um, you know, that would be a good thing. And so I, I do think that there is some efforts to do that. That said, it's a floor. It's a low uh, and it's a low one. And I think that's still going to put companies, as we've really been discussing over the in this entire conversation in a place where they're going to really have to continue to sort of manage to a challenging environment um, and, you know, take some of the mitigation efforts that, you know, Michael started to elaborate on. Yep. And I think I have a few um, a few points as well that I'll cover in the next segment, Daniel. But I think, uh, Doug, those points you know totally resonate with what we're seeing with practice. Great. Thanks, guys. And so lastly, let's turn to some of the pending legislation and that final push that we're seeing in D.C. surrounding the Build Back Better legislation and also infrastructure bills. Are there any considerations that GBA members should be monitoring from a trade impact perspective? Uh, yeah, I think there there is, Daniel. I'll just explain quickly some of them since this is both pieces of legislation are at varying stages and not quite finalized, uh, although the infrastructure bill is much farther along as we uh, record the podcast today, but I think we will know in the coming weeks what the final legislation will look like. Important, I think, for GBA members is two things. There, There is a significant amount of revenue raising activity uh, set in, in the two bills. In, in particular, there is reinstatement of the Superfund taxes that last were applied in the early, early to mid-90s. So we're, you know, 
we're 25 years removed from when companies had to manage the identification and, and tax compliance responsibilities. And from an import perspective, this is the relevance. Uh, on the refining and chemical side, import there is a provision in the Build Back Better plan for reinstating the Superfund for crude oil that is utilized at a refinery, received at a refinery, so that is domestic and foreign, as well as petroleum products. And so if a company is in that sector, they they will see some change in, in the costing models, potentially if that tax goes through. That is in addition to an existing oil spill liability tax that is enforced today. So it's very similar, but that the oil spill liability tax is presently nine cents per barrel. That's in force. The proposed Superfund for the same products would be an additional 16.4 cents per barrel. So that's one side of it. And the infrastructure bill, this is the more intriguing one for GBA members to focus on. The There is a reinstatement provision for Superfund on chemicals as well. And in fact, you have to look at it in a couple of different um, layers. The first is that they are reinstating the 42 chemicals that were last taxed in 1995-96 when it expired uh, with a wide range of different taxes per ton. Those taxes are applied on one, the imports of those chemicals and certain base metals, and then two, the U.S. manufacturing of those products. So a company will have to develop tools for monitoring and understanding what their tax uh, obligations may be for that list. The second piece that is a little more concerning is that the provision originally for the excise tax included a 50% content of any of those taxable chemicals in products that are imported. So in other words, an intermediate chemical that used two or three of those particular products and was at 65% of those products in its content, the U.S. importing entity had to understand and monitor and report that to the IRS and have a excise tax rate determined based on the chemical formulation. That resulted in 68 different chemicals being added to the subject list of taxable um, chemicals. These are on imports only, not on the U.S. manufacturing. But then the additional point of consideration is that the current legislation as proposed in the infrastructure bill will change that content requirement from 50% down to 20% as it is currently written. That will now capture a much wider range of intermediate chemical products that include some of these. The other concern that we are seeing is that 25 years, while it's not an eternity, is a long time in terms of the global supply chain, global manufacturing footprint. And there are probably a number of products that did not exist uh, 25 years ago that were picked up at the time the tax rules applied that will need to be considered. So we're now evaluating and looking at the potential impacts using data and some analytic tools to figure out what this could look like. And of course, those will have to be adjusted as we monitor the legislation. And we expect that this legislation will find its way to finality here, uh, probably as the government works through what to do with this last upcoming um, budget deadline in early December. So I think it's a stay tuned, but monitor closely because things being cut from the two uh, legislative packages right now do not seem to be the revenue raisers, rather the things that cost money. So these are likely to stay. But again, we need to see the final documents before we know for sure. But that is something folks should be paying attention to. Great. That's some great insight there. And uh, I'm glad we were able to squeeze infrastructure in because, you know, it's been on everyone's mind for these past few months. Um, but great conversation as always, guys. I really, really appreciate the time and uh, and uh, getting to get into more of the details here.
Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Daniel. Always, always a good talk.